Okay, so this is the last of the plays I'm going to talk about this term, and it's John Webster's tragedy from 1614, The Duchess of Malfi. And I've chosen to finish with this play because it kind of shows as a domestic tragedy, like Arden of Faversham, a play focused on a woman's self-determination and aspiration to sexual autonomy, coupled with a revenge tragedy, the compulsion of male relatives to avenge a perceived family slight. So it's a very interesting revenge tragedy in which um, the questions of how much sympathy we have with the revengers are really uh, pushed as far as, perhaps as far as that genre can go. And also because it shares with the other plays I've been talking about an interesting questions of social rank and status and the ability of the theatre to construct or to understand something we might want to recognise as an inner psyche. So the play tells the story of the eponymous Duchess, a widow who remarries her steward Antonio in secret, despite having reassured her strongly controlling brothers, Ferdinand and the Cardinal, that she will not take another husband. Ferdinand has planted a spy, Bossola, in the Duchess's household, and Bossola discovers that the Duchess has given birth to a son and attempts to establish the name of that child's father. The couple remain undiscovered for some time, and the Duchess has two further children before the threat from the brothers makes them plot to escape. Antonio and the children leave for Ancona, the Duchess announces she is going on a pilgrimage. She confides in Bossola, big mistake, who tips off Ferdinand and the Cardinal. Antonio and the eldest child escape, but the Duchess and her other children are captured and brought back. The Duchess is tortured and murdered under instructions from the increasingly mad Ferdinand with Bossola in command. Pricked with remorse, Bossola turns against his employers and vows to avenge the Duchess's death. In a confusion at the end of the play, Bossola thinks he is killing the Cardinal, but mistakenly murders Antonio. The Cardinal is murdered, Bossola and Ferdinand kill each other. The elder son of the Duchess and Antonio enters in the final scene, apparently to take up the Dukedom of Malfi. Now, Webster's plot is based on a historical story, the real story of the Duchess of Malfi and her marriage to her social inferior, the steward of her household, the terrible anger of her brothers. And this story appears in many works before Webster's own. What's really striking about all the previous retellings of this story is that they are almost all moralistic. Writing in his book of 1597, a book called The Theatre of God's Judgments, The Theatre of God's Judgments, Thomas Beard gave the story of the Duchess and Antonio under the heading of whoredoms committed under colour of marriage. And Beard suggests that Antonio and the Duchess were not really married and were merely fornicators. As a Protestant, Beard can hardly approve of the Roman Catholic cardinal, but he manages to get round this by arguing that the story shows how God uses all kinds of agents to pursue a higher judgment. 
Uh, I'll just quote from this. I've put the reference for Beard uh, on your handouts. The cardinal's cruelty was most famous, as also in putting to death the poor infants. Yet God's justice bare the sway that used him as an instrument to punish those who, under veil of secret marriage, thought it lawful for them to commit any villainy. And thus God busieth sometimes the most wicked about his will. So sometimes God uses wicked people to do his work and maketh the rage and fury of the devil himself serve for means to bring to pass his fearful judgments. So Beard is struggling with the fact that the story shows um, this very Roman Catholic world, uh, but he argues that uh, God has deployed uh, Roman Catholic agents uh, in the name of a sort of higher judgment on, on Antonio uh, and the Duchess. In William Painter's book, The Palace of Pleasure, The Palace of Pleasure, the blame is again placed on the Duchess and on Antonio. The Duchess is the stereotype of the lusty widow, the figure in the Renaissance imagination uh, who represents a woman who has had sex, perhaps in brackets so energetically that she's killed her husband, and cannot wait to resume this activity. This is from Painter. This lady, the Duchess, waxed very weary of lying alone, especially in the night. The secret silence and darkness of the same presented before the eyes of her mind the image of the pleasure which she felt in the lifetime of her deceased lord and husband. So in Painter's version of the story, the Duchess is culpable of excessive sexual desire. The story is a moral one, in which sexual desire, particularly women's sexual desire, is punished. But Painter also makes it clear that Antonio is in the wrong too. Antonio's crime in the source is not lust, but ambition. In marrying above his social station, he has earned the retribution which falls upon his ill-begotten household. Such end had the unfortunate marriage of him which ought to have contented himself with that degree and honour that he had acquired by the deeds and glory of his virtues. We ought never to climb higher than our force permitteth, says Painter. We ought never to climb higher than our force permitteth. Uh, echo perhaps of the epilogue to Dr Faustus there. Another play about climbing higher than force permitteth. So, in Painter, Webster's main source for the play, that's to say, the pair get their horrible comeuppance. In a moralistic story which is designed to show the rewards of sexual desire and social ambition, spiced up, like the true crime story of Arden of Faversham, with a kind of voyeuristic tabloid frisson, a window into the sex lives of the rich and famous. So, what does Webster do with all this? Well, firstly, I think he strips out, or at the le very least complicates, the moralistic gloss the story has had in Thomas Beard and in William Painter. It will be really hard to make the ending of the Duchess of Malfi a moral fable about knowing your social rank, as Painter does, or to suggest that Webster's cardinal is an agent of God's own judgment on sinners, as Beard does. 
Rather, Webster appears to have a kind of sympathy, it may be actually more like indifference, for all his flawed characters, a kind of equidistance from them, rather than a particular moral or characterological message. So the Duchess, importantly, both is and is not sympathetic. She isn't sympathetic in that she lies to her brothers in telling them she will not marry, even at the same time as she is arranging the meeting with the unwitting steward Antonio, at which she will surprise him into marriage. She, or perhaps it's Webster, wastes an opportunity to get the audience on side when, just before this momentous encounter, the thing that's going to kick off everything, the Duchess's secret marriage to Antonio, the Duchess has a few snatched moments of soliloquy alone on the stage. What she does with that silence, what she does with that potential for soliloquy, what she does with that moment alone, is rather striking, I think. Rather than elicit our sympathy or form a kind of conspiratorial alliance with us, her speech is disappointingly general, non-personal, even rather haughty. If all my royal kindred lay in my way unto this marriage, I'd make them my low footsteps, she says. And then, and even now, even in this haste, as men in some great battles by apprehending danger have achieved almost impossible actions, I have heard soldiers say so, so I, through frightenings and threatenings, will essay this dangerous venture. The addressee of this speech seems to be the Duchess herself, rather than the audience. This is literally fighting talk, an imagery derived explicitly from the martial, not the marital sphere, and a moment in which the bravery the Duchess evokes is quite deliberately not that of a woman, but of a man, a soldier. We might compare, say, Cordelia's use of asides in the opening scene of King Lear, a very similar point in the play, early on in the play, where it's important for the audience to try and understand uh, where their sympathies uh, are supposed to lie. Cordelia's use of asides in the opening scene of King Lear, she's able to make a connection to the audience. And in fact, there are any number of examples of Shakespearean tragedy in which the momentary clearing of a busy stage, as here, is the cue for us to get closer to our central character. That isn't what Webster does. You may remember in the popular film Shakespeare in Love, John Webster is a little urchin boy at the stage door, torturing mice and claiming that his favourite Shakespeare play is Titus Andronicus, the most gory one. Webster has, as that clever vignette acknowledges, Webster has inherited from Shakespeare but it's not the Shakespeare of interior psychology. It's much more the Shakespeare of horrific, theatricalised cruelty. And I'm going to come back to that idea of cruelty in a moment. Let's just stick for a moment with the question of morality in the play. I've suggested that the Duchess is presented ambivalently in that she lies to her brothers and tricks Antonio. Antonio is not altogether unwilling but nor could he quite be said to be fully and freely consenting into marrying her. She remains at a distance from the audience. We never know her name. And instead, she remains a remote figure defined by rank 
and incidentally by the rank of her first noble husband rather than her second one. On the other hand, though, there are many aspects of the play which are designed to create sympathy for her. A likeable domestic scene in which the couple and the Duchess's servant Cariola joke together suggests a real intimacy in their household, which is entirely at odds with the cold control attempted by her brothers. Her death is a set piece of immense stoicism. The famous line when she refuses to be broken by a lunatic pageant arranged by Ferdinand, I am Duchess of Malfi still, I am Duchess of Malfi still, asserts bravely and succinctly her refusal to compromise her dignity even under terrible provocation. Her last words remember her children in touching detail. Look, thou givest my little boy some syrup for his cold. The very different death of Cariola, the servant begging for mercy, is designed and placed precisely to emphasise the Duchess's own self-possession and grace. We watch the Duchess murdered on stage, strangled by a group of executioners. This is a scene which cannot possibly produce painter's moral that her lusty behaviour deserves such punishment. As one of the commendatory verses to the play, uh, as published, first published in 1623, asks, Whosoe'er saw this Duchess live and die that could get off under a bleeding eye. So the play's inconsistent attitudes to the Duchess may suggest its own struggle with what she represents and its struggle with the impossibility of reconciling her own aspirations for self-governance with the patriarchal world in which she, and perhaps her Jacobean audience, largely live. The play's own hiccups and plot inconsistencies perhaps are less a failure of Websterian craftsmanship and more uh, indications of the way in which the play documents cultural uncertainties. Webster's play does not concern itself, unlike the sources, with blame. Nor is it actually particularly interested in causes. Why do things happen? We never know why the Duchess wants to marry Antonio. Modern productions, which present him as a beefcake, try to preempt the question, but the character in the play is weak and unconvincing, although that may, of course, be what the Duchess finds attractive. So we don't know why the Duchess wants to marry Antonio. We don't know why the brothers are so implacably opposed to the Duchess marrying at all. Their opposition is very clearly to marriage in general rather than to this particular marriage, although there are some hints of incestuous desire when Ferdinand imagines his sister with some strong-thighed bargeman. This suggestion of sibling relationships which are too close perhaps draws distantly on the relationship between Belle Imperia and Lorenzo, the brother who so closely polices her sex life in the Spanish tragedy, to the extent of dogging her tryst with Horatio in the garden. And perhaps, too, we can see the development of this line of interest into the openly incestuous relationship between brother and sister Giovanni and Annabella in John Ford's Tis Pity She's a Whore, some five years after the Duchess of Malfi. There's a real interest in brother-sister bonds in the tragedy uh, particularly the Jacobean period. But if Webster is interested 
it's, sorry, if Webster is less interested in causes and in moral judgment, he is interested in consequences, in consequences, in what might happen once a particular set of circumstances are in place. It doesn't really matter why they're in place, but what matters, I think, to Webster's sense of stagecraft is what happens next. The play toys with this interest in consequences, spinning out the inevitable discovery of the secret marriage between the Duchess and Antonio to unbelievable lengths. We know it's going to end badly. The threats of the brothers in the opening scene, the grim punning right from the play's opening on the word ring. Ring is a prize in the tilting competition. It's a hangman's noose. It's the symbol of marriage and in a common Renaissance idea, the musculature of the vagina. It connects winning a prize with female sexuality, with death, in a way that the the play's narrative can't quite avoid either. When at the beginning of Act 3, Delio, Antonio's friend and confidant, returns to Malfi after a spell away, the dialogue seems laughable and indeed does generally cause a laugh in the theatre. How fares your noble duchess, asks Delio. Right fortunately well, replies the proud husband. She's an excellent feeder of pedigrees. Since you last saw her, she hath had two children more, a son and a daughter. It's happened since the last time we saw the duchess too. Delio's methinks twas yesterday rebounds as a metatheatrical joke about the play's potentially ludicrous and elastic timescale. But the Duchess's fertility is not just comic in terms of raising a laugh, it is comic generically. So it's not just comic tonally, but comic generically. If tragedy is the genre associated with death and destruction, comedy is associated with rebirth, with spring, with new futures. We might think of a more or less contemporary play, Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale. There, the young baby Perdita is the play's sign to us that tragedy will not be its final word, that there is a post-tragic future, winter ends, and children represent that new growth buried in the frozen earth. In popping all these children in the middle of the play, the Duchess and the tragedy that bears her name seem to be trying to elude the narrative logic of the play in which they find themselves, making a last-ditch attempt to re-establish, to rewrite this story as comedy rather than tragedy. The children are indeed incongruous in the play, but not, I think, primarily because the timescale is all compressed, but because they belong to and gesture towards another incompatible genre. One of the features of Webster's critical reception has been a long history of neglect, uh, and as I'll come to write at the end, really only a a sort of rehabilitation of the plays on the stage uh, in the second half of the 20th century. During the 19th century, it was compared unfavourably by George Henry Lewis, the partner of George Eliot, to Shakespeare. So an unfavourable comparison to Shakespeare has pretty much dogged um, Webster's reception. Lewis uh, has a a great phrase, actually, for thinking about how Webster is not Shakespeare. 
instead of holding the mirror up to nature, obviously a quotation from Hamlet, instead of holding the mirror up to nature, this drama, The Duchess of Malfi, holds the mirror up to Madame Tussauds. So instead of holding the mirror up to nature, this drama holds the mirror up to Madame Tussauds. Lewis means this as a criticism in a realist theatre, in a realist theatre that finds Hamlet's image holding up the mirror to nature to be the highest calling of the drama, and in a culture which sees the popular waxworks of Madame Tussauds, particularly known for their interests in murderers and other gory horrors, as morally unedifying and lowbrow. But Lewis' comparison, I think, is a really useful one for thinking about what is interesting about Webster. And I want to try and push that by considering one aspect of the play. In Act 4, Ferdinand tortures his imprisoned sister by means of some Halloweenish props. He gives to her a dead man's hand and prompts her to notice that the ring on it is the one she gave. It is apparently Antonio's hand. And then the stage direction gives us, here is discovered, behind a traverse, the artificial figures of Antonio and his children appearing as if they were dead. Here is discovered, behind a traverse, the artificial figures of Antonio and his children appearing as if they were dead. It's a really interesting stage direction for readers of the play in that the double questioning of the reality of this macabre spectacle, both in the word artificial and the phrase appearing as if they were dead, makes it quite unclear how we, to, how we are to think about what's being shown to us and the Duchess. As readers, I think, we're encouraged not to believe that this is a true representation of Antonio and the children. We're encouraged not to think that this means that they are dead. In watching the play on stage, it might well be more convincing. The quarto title page boasts that the play was performed both in the outdoor daylight theatre of the Globe and in the indoor candlelit theatre of Blackfriars. And this scene seems a scene designed for the sepulchral lighting effects of Blackfriars. Most modern productions do not go to the trouble and expense of preparing artificial figures or waxworks, and instead have the Antonio and children actors standing there, ghostly still, in an enactment that both verifies and undermines Ferdinand's piece of theatre. The waxworks here at this point in the plot of the play are not, in fact, Antonio and the children. That's a piece of gratuitous cruelty by Ferdinand. The Duchess's family are still alive. But Antonio is indeed going to be killed, and that he seems to the theatre audience and to the Duchess to be dead already is merely a proleptic acknowledgement that before long he will be killed in a mistake by Bossola. Bossola's attempts to repent his wicked behaviour are decisively sabotaged by something, the pressure of the genre of the play, perhaps, the pressure of the sources, the wickedness of the world in which the characters live, the pessimism of Webster's vision. There's a kind of sense that uh, the characters can't do anything. Uh, they can't, they, 
the Duchess can't have her children, Bosola can't repent his wickedness, none of them can avert the consequences which are coming. So Webster's dramaturgy, I think, preempts Lewis' criticism that the drama holds a mirror up to Madame Tussauds rather than to nature by interrogating the relation between the waxworks presented by Ferdinand and the real persons bodied forth in the actors playing Antonio and the children. The 1623 quarter of the Duchess of Malfi is the first printed play text to identify actors for particular roles. So we know that Antonio was played by William Ostler. In deliberately drawing a comparison between persons and waxworks, the play brings out the extent to which actors in plays, like actors in the world, can be manipulated to bring about particular effects and to pursue particular narratives. One of the major themes of the Duchess of Malfi, a play much concerned with bonds of service and obligation <coughs> in its depiction of Antonio as a steward, Bossola as a paid spy, Cariola as a waiting maid. So one of its major themes is the ability of social superiors to command the behaviour of those around them. This has its more benign application in the Duchess's admission of the miseries of us that are born great. We are forced to woo because none dare woo us. That's a justification uh, for springing a marriage on Antonio. But it has its darker counterpart in the service Bossola delivers Ferdinand. In the description of an excellent actor, probably written by Webster and printed as part of a series of humorous character types by Thomas Overbury, uh, the reference for Overbury is on your handouts, the parallel between the actor inside the theatre and the actor in the world is drawn out. It's a version of the common Renaissance trope of Theatrum Mundi, theatre as the world. All men have been of his occupation, that's the actors, and indeed what he doth feignedly, that do others essentially. So all men have been of the actors' occupation, and indeed what the actor doth feignedly, that do others essentially. Everyone, that's to say, pretends to be something they are not. Everyone takes on different roles for pragmatic purposes. The resonance of the early modern analogy between the theatre and the world is not, as Hamlet's mirror up to nature suggests, primarily that theatre should reflect the real world. In fact, it's actually the other way round, that life outside the theatre should recognise its own theatricality. The theatre was such a pervasive cultural force in this period, not because it tried to represent reality, but instead because it provided a ready image for the ways in which reality was already theatrical, contingent, performed. All the world's a stage, says Jaques famously in As You Like It, not vice versa. It is Bossola who comes nearest to this recognition at the end of the Duchess of Malfi. How came Antonio by his death, asks one of the bewildered bystanders in the play's catastrophic final scene. In a mist, replies the fatally wounded Bossola, in a mist. I know not how, such a mistake as I have often seen in a play. Such a mistake as I have often seen in a play. 
Bosseler's understanding of himself as an actor who does not understand or need to understand the role in which he finds himself may have an affinity with the theatre practice whereby early modern actors had their own lines and their cues, the so-called cue scripts, discussed by Simon Palfrey and Tiffany Stern in their book Shakespeare in Parts, rather than having access to the whole text. But at the end of The Duchess of Malfi, Bosseler's admission seems to cast the play in an absurdist frame in its conclusion. Bosseler's characteristic ability to stand outside situations, to comment on them from the sidelines, to remain aloof from their sentimental connotations, to present himself as a gun for hire, is here turned sceptically on the play itself. Bosseler's speaking part in the play is more than a third longer than the Duchess's. She may be the title character, but hers is not the play's dominant voice, and lots of critics have been interested in the fact that she, she doesn't really make it as a tragic hero right through to, the, uh, to Act 5. She's killed in Act, in act 4, um, and, and the play is sort of uh, a bit off-centre because of that. Instead, centrality is given to this marginal intelligencer, Bosseler, a kind of combination of John Donne and Iago. The, the Donne is the metaphysical language of, Don, of Donne's songs and sonnets, which are circulating in manuscript around the time of the play's composition. We might look at something like Bosseler's use of the simile of geometry to animate the image of a soldier on crutches as an equivalent to that compass in Dunn's valediction forbidding morning. So there's kind of metaphysical language uh, about Bosseler. And Partiago, the malignant agency of the clever, amoral servant role from the new comedy associated with Plautus. Bosseler's terrible agency in the play is that of the malcontent. The malcontent. A distinctly early modern phenomenon a product of a massive increase in secondary education under the Tudors, an educated man who cannot get preferment, a clever, isolated individual whose intelligence is turned to malignity, or more precisely, to amorality. Bosseler's cunning is everywhere in the play, and it's really important that he has no counterpart anywhere in the source stories. He's a made-up uh, figure by, by Webster. He's a, he's a made-up character, he's a made-up role. Not surprisingly, because Bosseler uh, takes on the, the role of the go-between of theatre, not of prose narrative. Theatre has a need for these characters who can go uh, from, from one place to another. Uh, that's often a role of the fool, um, someone who, who bridges different, uh, different worlds in the play. In this play, it's Bosseler. And Bosseler is also a complicated, conflicted figure, ultimately incompatible with the moralising readings the story had previously had. In part, he seems to draw those source stories tutting over Antonio, the steward who marries a duchess, so Bosseler becomes the figure of class anxiety in the Duchess of Malfi, rather than Antonio. But more than that, I think he may represent the play's ultimate ambivalence to the story it tells. His sudden repentance for his work with the Duchess's brothers stands in, perhaps, for the play's own squeamishness about the inevitable end of the story 
it has chosen to retell. I want to draw a wider point from Webster's thoroughgoing rehabilitation of the moral lineaments of his source story and of his refusal to acknowledge the didactic aspects he should have inherited along with the plot. This evasion of moral judgment is less, I think, an aspect of Webster's own dramaturgical ethics, although you might want to compare a similar technique in The White Devil, his tragedy of 1612. So it's, it's less uh, distinctly Websterian and more a feature of Jacobean tragedy that we might want to call sceptical, a questioning, a radical ambivalence, and in, an inability or an avoidance of preaching and of sentimentality. It's extremely hard to make these plays give us a message. They're much, they seem much too ethically unstable uh, and uncommitted for that. Webster, as T.S. Eliot identified in his famous poem, Whispers of Immortality, saw the skull beneath the skin. Webster saw the skull beneath the skin. And that's not just in his abiding morbidity, but in his unflinching forensics, a desire to understand what's beneath. The Duchess of Malfi gives us a kind of social autopsy into familial, religious and emotional corruption. Perhaps Ferdinand puts uh, the strangeness of this dissection best. Uh, more or less right at the point he's dying, he, he brings out a wonderful simile like diamonds, we are cut with our own dust. Like diamonds, we are cut with our own dust. In the quarto text of this speech, Ferdinand's lines are placed in quotation marks. It's a common practice in printed play texts of the period to identify quotations ready for extraction, the technique of reading called commonplacing, Commonplacing means identifying readily applicable lines that can be taken from their context and placed under headings like death or kingship or love in a commonplace book. It seems that commonplacing, this act of extraction and quotation, was the most common mode of Renaissance reading. It's very hard to find any evidence that people read for the plot and very easy to find evidence for the ways in which they read for the good bits, the good linguistic bits. Webster's pre-commonplace texts, so plays which are already printed with the good bits highlighted for you, so it's easy to pull them out into a commonplace book. Webster's pre-commonplace texts already know that they are nodding towards a different non-narrative reception. In some way, Ferdinand knows, even as he's dying, that the audience wants a good line. In some way, the line is already marked as a quotation at one remove from its immediate context. It's another way in which Webster denies us the illusion, I think, of real people on the stage, stressing either the theatricality or the literariness of his speaking subjects. There's a substantial later 20th century performance tradition for the Duchess of Malfi. But I want to finish with a single example of the way it is the play's inhumanity, the way its characters treat each other, but also the way the play treats them, 
So it's the play's inhumanity that is its most compelling feature. As the quotation from George Henry Lewis indicates, during the 19th century, the Duchess of Malfi was not a favourite, and theatrical revivals failed to capture the public. The first successful modern revival was a production starring John Gielgud and Peggy Ashcroft, which opened in London in 1945. The review in the Times newspaper found the production utterly compelling and identified that for the first time the play had found its moment. Perhaps the juxtaposition of the review on the newspaper page supplies what that moment was. The page which includes the review of the Haymarket's new opening of the Duchess of Malfi is actually dominated by the early, in fact the first photographs the Times printed of Allied troops liberating European death camps. There must have been horrific pictures uh, in April 1945. One photograph features an open lorry piled with bodies. Another shows emaciated prisoners in striped uniforms looking indifferently at their liberators. It's striking that it is this context, as a shocked, war-wearied British public were confronted with the first visual evidence of the horrors of the Holocaust, which brought the Duchess of Malfi back to theatrical life. In this series, I've been concentrating on some of the ways in which Renaissance plays tell us what their audiences found, it, what their audiences found important, problematic or enjoyable. But it seems appropriate to end with an example of the ways, often unexpectedly, in which 400-year-old plays can find a new topicality in new circumstances. Thank you.